So last week we talked about heaven, hell, Hades, Abraham's bosom, new heavens, new earth. What comes next? Resurrection, judgment? Can I ask one question? Yes. When he comes, when the second coming, what is that? What are we looking for exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you're recording this. You don't want to hear No, there is a moment in human history when Jesus will physically, in his body, do something that we will understand to be coming on the clouds. Whether that is literal, whether that is a metaphor, we'll know it when we see it, that Christ will be physically present. And to everybody. To, to everyone. And everybody is reunited with their bodies. The dead in Christ will rise. The dead in unbelief will rise and be reunited with their bodies. And there will be a a physical separation so that either actually or in a way that we clearly grasp the metaphor, some will be on his left and some will be on his right. Everyone will be judged on the basis of their works, which is a great tie-in to today's Heidelberg Catechism. Well, what does that mean? And a judicial declaration from Christ, the great judge, will be made. Depart from me. I never knew you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Good morning. And in some way, that is, good morning, that is either actual or metaphorical that we will immediately understand the metaphor, why he said it this way, uh, we will depart and go. And, and, and we will inherit the eternal life that we have chosen by our sin or by our faith. It's very, it is physical. And it happens to every single person. Yes. Same time's an interesting one, right? Like, in, in, in the same judgment, does that mean the same second? Does, does, does he do it all at once? Does time suspend itself in a way that I, I don't know? I know that you, I know that everyone will have the actual real experience of having gone through that process. It's not just like, snap and it's over and now I have the results you will have the real experience of standing before Christ and being judged and and receiving eternal life according to that judgment does he do that by suspending time does he do that by it doesn't matter that it takes eight minutes a person and that there's a trillion people because we have eternity. I don't think we're going to get bored standing in line. So I'm like that, that stuff sort of blows my mind when you get into the time part of it, but it is a real physical event that you will experience in real time. And I, I, I have no reason to believe you wouldn't look back to that for all of eternity as a, as a, seminal event in your life of that judgment. Does that help? Yeah. Is that responsive to the question? I guess. There's not going to be car wrecks and all that stuff going on and 
more stuff happening afterwards, all that jazz. That's just it. It's the end of the deal. So that lady is singing. She is singing, and then as part of her song, the new heavens and the new earth are created. So uh, here, I'll try to analogize here, which is where you get thrown in the gulag for heresy. <clears throat> Think about your body and what we said about what's going to happen to your body. It's the same body, but it has different characteristics. It's your physical body, but it will be glorified, a glorified body, different physical characteristics, just like Jesus's. Prior to the resurrection, you don't see Jesus walking through walls. Uh, after the resurrection, suddenly Jesus can appear in a room. Jesus' body is familiar, same body, has different characteristics. And I'm not saying walking through walls will be one of our characteristics. So that would be pretty fun, let's be honest. Um, in the same way that we sort of understand this glorified body concept. Same world, familiar world, now glorified. Apply that to the world itself, the earth. Same earth in that it's recognizable. It is of the same substance. It is the earth that God has made, but in what is to us a fundamentally different form because it's a, almost a glorified earth the way we would have a glorified body. That's how scripture speaks of the new heavens and a new earth. It speaks of it in very earth-like terms, very familiar terms, and says no curse, no death, no sin, no decay, lion, lamb, laying down, all that kind of language. And, and I think one of the places that we want to, I think a helpful way to think about all end times, eschatology, and new heavens, new earth language is that there are a ton of metaphors and perhaps even some allegory in scripture around these things. But for those to be true, they have to have a real correspondence to what's going to happen. It can't just be a made-up story for the sake of story. It's got to be like a parable, a made-up story, because there's an underlying truth there to which it's really connected. So when we get into the new heavens and the new earth, when we experience the last judgment, the end times, either it will be exactly like he said, wasn't a metaphor at all, no, that's really what's going to happen, or it will be just as he said, a metaphor that we immediately recognize, this is what he meant, here's the connection. Yes, it's a metaphor, but it must have a touch point in reality or it's not true. Does that make sense? Other questions about that? Yeah, it makes per- yeah now we all understand it. We're done. Good question. All right, Lord's Day 23, Heidelberg 59. But what does it profit you now that you believe all this? All the end time stuff we've talked about. Resurrection, judgment. What does it profit you now that you believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to eternal life. Question 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, though my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed any sin, and myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if I only accept such benefit with a a believing heart. And question 61, why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? 
Answer, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and I can receive the same and make it my own in no other way than by faith only. All right, we're going to talk about faith. What's the benefit of believing these things? Well, believing these things is faith. And what's the benefit of faith? It is the only thing that saves. Uh, Stephen, can you read Romans 3, 19 to 26? So what difference does it make to believe this stuff? Well, I mean, we just went through the Apostles' Creed. Remember, that's what the Heidelberg was doing. It was walking us through the whole of the Apostles' Creed. What do we believe? Now we get to the end of it, and that's, okay, this is what we believe. What difference does it make is the next question the Heidelberg asks, which is part of why we love the Heidelberg Catechism so much, because it cares to ask that question. If you believe these things and it has no purpose... Fine, I believe a lot of trivial and useless things, but is this something more than that? Yes, in fact, only the one who believes these things has true faith. And true faith is the only thing which, uh, by which God can declare us righteous. What gets tricky about faith is how quickly we turn it into a work. How quickly we turn true faith into a work. So the the very thing that brought us to believe the Apostles' Creed in the first place, the very thing that made us righteous before God by faith, we believe these things and we say, I did that. Well, I believe that. Is I believe that different? Then I did that. What was the thing that brought us to the point of belief? Well, you got to go back several weeks in this class. Where did it start? It started with the law and recognizing our utter condemnation under the law. It started with the recognition that we could never hope to have salvation by our own works. Well, the, the... The recognition that we can never have salvation by our own works. If it's that recognition that saves us, what did we just do? We made it a work. (laughs) The one work you have to do is not obey the law. The one work you have to do is recognize that you can't obey the law. Well, that sounds lovely, except you've just given away the whole thing. 
You've taken everything back with the right hand, what you gave with the left. You can't have it that way. So faith is actually, the Christian faith, is an entire and complete looking away of myself toward another for righteousness. Faith does not involve looking here. But you all know, because I'm not the only one in this room, who will turn faith into a works all the time. And you start by saying the right things about God. And then as you sort of go down that path, you start looking, but you say, and I, I believe that. I believe that real strong. I believe that stronger than other people believe it. Don't you see by the good things that I do how much I believe that? Look at the bad things those people do. They don't believe it as strongly as I do. Yeah, and I did some book learning, and I learned some more things about this. So I know more about this faith than you guys even know. Do you know that about me? I know a lot about faith. That's pretty gross, isn't it? And yet we do that all within our hearts. We take faith, which is supposed to be this looking away, looking at Christ entirely for righteousness, and we say yes, yes, yes to all that, and look how good I am at looking away. And I chose to look away. And look at all these people who don't chose to look. Look at all these people who think they're getting into heaven by their own work. I thank thee, O God, that I am not like... Oh, oh, wait, that's a different verse. You see what happens? You see how quickly we get there. Faith itself is not the source of our righteousness. Hear that sentence again. Faith itself is not the source of our righteousness. You are not righteous from the source of faith. You are righteous from the source of what? Jesus' righteousness. The one in whom you must believe. The one in whom you must have faith. But your faith is not what makes you righteous. His righteousness is what makes you righteous. Right? You see how this this is tough. This is tough stuff. This is why creeds and councils and, and catechisms have struggled with this and have had to go into such detail about this over the centuries because we will take all this great stuff from the Bible about Christ and we will make it about us. It's one of our favorite things to do. I have a friend who says that in conversation regularly just to be humorous because nobody else will say that part out loud. He says, yeah, yeah, but, but how do we make this conversation about me? Like, I love that so much. That is the most honest thing, because that's what I was thinking on the inside. This, we've, we've had a good time talking about you and your things for a while, but what about me? Uh, so, uh, never mind. Won't, won't quote that movie on a recording, but you all know what quote I'm thinking of from a 90s movie with Julie Roberts. All right. Double imputation is the idea that two things are imputed in two different directions. What does imputed mean? What does it mean to impute something? To credit. Andrew, when I pick up the coffee, I need you to take longer in your answers. Uh, to count something. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to count someone's on a note. So it, it's, it's to, to grant as there something that is otherwise not there, apart from the grant. It's to credit something on someone's behalf. The, the way we, pretty much the only way I think we use the word imputed in modern vernacular is when we say what? You imputed motives to me. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. And I said, well, this is just the best day ever. Well, what did my word say? My word said this was the best day ever. Is that what I meant? 
When I said it like that, did I mean, no, I meant this was not a very good day. You imputed motives to me. You credited the motive there. Oh, you're, you're being sarcastic. You're trying to say this is a bad day. So you impute motives. You take something that wouldn't be there, except you declare it to be there. And in salvation, we have double imputation. So what's the first thing that gets imputed? doesn't matter which one you pick. There's no right answer here. Sin. What, whose sin? My sin. The sin of, of someone who believes. And that sin actually belongs to me. That sin is really present in my life, in my account. And then we take Christ. And what is Christ's relationship to sin? <laughs> Zero. Nil. It's a null set. He has none. There is no sin that belongs to Christ except by imputation. God declares my sin that I did, that I did freely, that I chose to do, many of which I liked to do when I was doing them, and defended to add sin upon sin. And all of that sin gets imputed to Christ. Christ is a sinner. Whew. I mean, that's got to punch you in the stomach, right? Christ is accounted as a sinner. Why? Because my sin is imputed to him. It's not some mathematical formula. It's not some philosophical magic trick. It is God actually taking my record of sin, my selfishness, my stubbornness, my lies, my betrayal, all the things that I've done in my life that are filled with sin, and God takes those and he puts them actually on Christ. These belong to him now. And when he looks at Christ on the cross... He sees my sin. He doesn't see the perfect second person of the Trinity with whom he's had eternal blessedness since before all time. He doesn't see Christ, the perfectly righteous man who lives three plus decades without sin, always in obedience to the Father. He doesn't see that at all. He sees my sin. That should be mind-blowing. All right, what's the second imputation then? We got sin. What's the other one? Righteousness. Righteousness. What is my relationship to righteousness prior to this? (laughs) Most of you have spent enough time with me. We have some guests and you don't know, but you can assume pretty safely that I am part of the problem in this world. Okay. (laughs) My relationships to righteousness, thumb down, lots of sin, not near perfect righteousness, not even close. And that's the only kind of righteousness that God even understands his perfect righteousness. Um, and I, 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 have a, I have no relationship with that. What is Christ's relationship with righteousness? Perfect obedience. Three plus decades, perfect obedience. All those times that you're listening to a dad lecture drone on and on and on and on, and you didn't even do the thing that dad is lecturing you about, and you're thinking sinful thoughts about your dad in your head, Jesus never did that. He got dad lectures, but he never did that. All of those times that we are tempted into sin, sins of envy and of covetousness, sins of lust, sins of anger, Jesus experienced every one of those temptations. And not even once did he sin. Not even once. It's mind-blowing. And yet, when God... It'll be Christ, the second person. We just talked about this. Looks upon us in the judgment. And we are standing before Christ to give an account for our lives. What will he see? 
He will see Christ's perfect righteousness. He will see that record of moral perfection as actually belonging to me, as being mine. Good morning. It's, it's, it's incredible. I, I, we couldn't make this stuff up, and we would feel blasphemous if we did make it up. It just is too good to be true. It's too, it's too much of God and not of us. So that is the source of our righteousness. Jesus, double imputation. He's condemned. We're put right with God. So uh, in the, you guys, I've mentioned before, I'm using this G.I. Williamson commentary on the Heidelberg that I think is really helpful. He uses a lot of analogies in the faith section. So let me give you a couple of the analogies he uses here that are, I think are helpful. He talks about the difference between a living eye and a glass eye. So a glass eye looks like an eye, right? You look at it, you think, oh, that's an eye. What's the problem with a glass eye? It can't really see. So just as it is by a living eye, not a glass eye, that we can see the light of a beautiful sunset, So it is by a genuine faith and not dead faith that we receive the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. His righteousness is that righteousness that we need to be saved is something different than our faith. But it is only by genuine faith that we can receive it. The sunset is something distinct from the eye, but it is only by a true and living eye that you can receive the sunset. These are two distinct things. That is our faith and the righteousness that saves us. Faith that didn't produce righteousness would condemn, like it wouldn't save us. It'd be really nice. We would believe in God and that would be great. But it's not enough to believe in God except that in God's uh, redemptive plan for his people, that belief credits righteousness. It imputes the righteousness of Christ to us and by that we're saved. Now, does that mean, when we say faith alone, does that mean faith is all by itself in isolation? Don't we say that? We're saved by faith alone. That's an important, distinctive cry of the Protestant Reformation. We're saved by faith alone. So faith is the only thing we should ever talk about or think about, and there's nothing else involved in the process of salvation except faith, right? No. No, we just mentioned righteousness. When you take in the sunset, Is it true to say your eyes, uh, you see through your eyes? Is that a true statement? You see with only your eyes. Oh, that gets a little dicier, right? I mean, I don't see with my nose, but my eyes are connected to an optic nerve, which is connected to a brain, which processes signals. So we're not, so it is with faith. The only reason that an eye functions is that the eye is part of a human body. And the only reason that living faith functions, the only reason that faith saves us, is that faith is part of a a system, for lack of a better term, a, a body of things that God uses in salvation. So genuine faith in Jesus is always accompanied by a repentant heart and by a willingness to obey his commandments. So what am I saved by? Am I saved by faith? Yes, I'm saved by faith alone. That faith is always alone? No, that faith is always with a repentant heart and a willingness to follow Christ in obedience. 
Everybody get that? Everybody clear on faith? <laughs> Are we clear on faith? We, we got it, right? We all... You see how quickly we turn it into a work, though? I an, um, it's in one of these questions. So if I don't answer it, ask it again. But I, I think it's in one of these that I remember from my highlights. But why don't we say we are, are, are we saved by Christ alone? We, why don't we say that instead of faith? Because we say Christ is the object of faith. And so we say we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. <laughs> uh, we will stay out of that. Duly noted (laughs) response. All right, one other thing I want to say from this Heidelberg question 60. Did y'all notice when I was reading the answer, I've grievously sinned only by true faith in Jesus that though my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil. What does that mean? What does it mean I am still inclined to all evil. Does it mean that all we do is sin? That even now as believers in Christ, the only thing you can do is sin. Is that what that means? No, no, that would be a pretty hopeless life. You have to take it along with the previous clause, though my conscience accused me. Your whole life, every day that you are in Christ, there are going to be two testimonies that you hear two voices speaking to your, to your mind. One is your conscience and the other is the word of God. And your conscience is going to constantly accuse you that you are still sinful and that you are inclined to all manner of sin. That you look around and you can't stop counting the number of ways that you could sin. That there are some sins that you've not put to death that you still love. That's what your conscience is going to be testifying to you. There is also for the Christian at the same time another testimony, which is the word of God, who declares that we are right with God through faith. Which testimony is true? Both. Both testimonies are true. Isn't your conscience right that you still sin? Isn't your conscience right that sometimes, shamefully, you still love that sin? And we go running towards sin? We see sin on the horizon, and instead of saying, whoa, sin, i got to get out of here, we say, well, I mean, it might not be too much sin. Might. Isn't that what we do? Inclined to all evil, still sin. Both testimonies are true, but they're talking about two different things. The testimony of our conscience concerns our condition, which is far from perfect, whereby we are still being conformed to the image of Christ. We're still being sanctified. We're still putting sin to death. We're still at war with this mortal sinful man, this flesh within us. The testimony of God concerns our standing in his sight. What will God say of us? When we stand before Christ in the day of judgment, he will not say, well, you know, Noah, you had true faith, 
But let's talk about Thursday, October 15th, 2016. Were you even alive? I don't know. Yes, you were alive. (laughs) That's not how it's going to work. Our standing before God is as he has declared in Scripture. And both of those testimonies are true. We need to be honest about both of those testimonies. And depending on how we're wired, we're going to need a little more help with one or the other of those. Some of you in this room are, are wired more tender-conscienced, to make up a word. <laughs> and you believe that God will declare you righteous on the last day if it's a good day this week and you're sitting down with another Christian over a cup of coffee and they're asking if you really believe that you are accepted by God and fully adopted into his family and loved by him. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. But the louder voice in your ear, the one that you hear and you want to believe, is that voice of conscience that reminds you how much sin you still have and how far you fall from God's standard. And that voice that, at its loudest, will start to say things like, I mean, do you really believe? Because if you really believed, Tuesday, October 15th, come on. That's, some of us are really going to struggle to put that voice in its proper context. And then some of us in this room who are not so tender-conscienced <laughs> struggle. Uh, we, we are glad to accept and to repeat to others and to repeat to ourselves that we are fully righteous in Christ. And we can tend to think that we're also pretty close to that righteousness of Christ just on our own. And and we need to remember that there is still a battle against sin within us. That we do still love sin, including the sin of pride. And that we are supposed to be warring against sin in our lives. And not taking such presumptive rest in what Christ did for us that we decide anything goes. Is that not a show of hands? But is it clear to you which of those two camps you fall in? Everybody should recognize I either struggle to believe that I am that bad and that I have a sin problem or I really struggle to believe that I am actually accepted in Christ because have you seen my sin problem? We'll we'll all fall off. And and both of those things are, for both of us, for all of us, we have to to preach truth on both points. But some truths are easier for us to believe than others. And usually in most rooms, it's about a 50-50 split in the church of people who are struggling to preach the gospel to their conscience or struggling to preach the gospel to their obedience. And what causes that? Wiring, experience, trauma. What, what causes it? There is a wiring factor because you can see it in kids early on. So there's definitely a wiring factor. But there's also a life experience and trauma factor. If, if your life experience is this, um, what you perceive as a continuous string of failures, you are more likely 
to perceive yourself as a failure and you're going to struggle with acceptance. There's no way God would actually accept me. All these people can say nice things to me. They don't know who I really am. Uh, and in the same category, if your life is, is the, the rich young man that Jesus encounters, I mean, he's kept the law since his youth. What do you want from him? Would you also say it can change based on factors in your life? I think it needs to be pretty dr- dramatic factors, but yes. I think we will tend to go the way we're wired until, unless dramatic, uh, I mean, I don't want to overuse the word, traumatic factors are introduced. It's got to be a pretty big type of event in our life to change that wiring. But you see it happen all the time. I'm not, I'm not saying it can't happen. So does this discussion relate to the, uh, the new man and the old man concept um, in the New Testament? Yes. And which man do you believe is real? Right, which, which one do you believe is real? Are you a new creation in Christ? And do you therefore walk boldly in that newness of life? Or do you say, yeah, that's just something that people that actually know what that feels like on the inside say, and I don't have that whatever feeling they're talking about, so that can't be me. And yeah. The two, I mean, the two doctrines, whatever you're, whatever, everywhere in the Bible you go, because redemptive, the story of redemption is the story of the Bible. Everywhere in the Bible you go, you will encounter the two truths that we struggle to accept. I am a sinner in need of a savior, actually sinner in need of a savior without help, except from God. I am a sinner in need of a savior. We struggle with that. I am completely accepted in Christ. Not partially, not conditionally. I am completely accepted in Christ. And typically, when you go through the mess that the messes that we'll make in our lives, relational mess, work mess, look at the messes that you've made in your life where your sin was involved. You can probably point to one of those two things that you were struggling to believe and to walk by faith in. There's a great book on counseling called uh, Counsel from the Cross, Elise Fitzpatrick. And uh, it's a great framework for evaluating our lives. All right, Lord's Day 24. But why can't our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because the righteousness which can stand before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and wholly conformable to the divine law, while even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. (laughs) I love this. Question 63. What? (laughs) Do our good works merit nothing? While God will yet reward them in this life and in the future life? Answer. This reward is not of merit, but of grace. 64. Does this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. All right, let's talk about God for a minute. And I think this will answer, Matt, your question about righteousness from a few minutes ago. Who has 1 John 4, 8? I do. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And who has 1 John 1, 5? 
is a message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. All right, so which is it? Is God love or is he righteousness? careful here. Um, If our teaching gets unbalanced about God's attributes, and specifically those two attributes, we really get into a mess. If If you emphasize God's love to the point that you diminish his light, his righteousness, his holiness, you are not talking about God's love anymore. You're talking about an attribute that you've made up because God's love is perfectly righteous and his righteousness is perfectly loving. God's attributes are not at war with one another. It's a lovely time to plug the GROW conference where the theme is God's attributes are not at war with one another. Um, So if God is light and there is no darkness... What kind of righteousness is God talking about when he talks about righteousness? Is he talking about 80% righteousness with 20% shadow of darkness? No. Is he talking about 99% righteousness with 1% shadow of darkness? No. When God talks about righteousness, what is he talking about? Righteousness. Doing the right thing the right way for the right reason, with the right motives, all of which are entirely pure. By that definition, have you ever done a righteous thing in your life? No. No. Not by that definition. Not by that standard. And that is God's standard. And that's why it can't be, okay, God, if you'll just make me a better person than I was, then I'll do more good than bad, or I'll do more good than those people. And that'll be good enough. What's God supposed to do with that? What what, what can he do with this made up, pretend, imperfect righteousness? So then why should we even try? We shouldn't, right? Because if everything we do is filthy rags, then you see the problem here? (laughs) You see see the tension that we've got to overcome? Um, And isn't God unjust? I mean, after all, nobody's unjust. Nobody's perfect. I made up words. (laughs) Nobody's perfect. Don't we love saying that? Nobody's, everybody makes mistakes. God's just unreasonable. He made us. He made us humans. Humans are flawed and imperfect. Therefore, God should not expect perfection. All right, kids, what's wrong with what I just said? Didn't God make us? That's true. He made humans, and humans are imperfect. We can't be perfect. So God made imperfect humans and told them to be perfect. Is that right? No? Why not? We brought the sin to the world. Turns out God did make us perfect, didn't he? He made us sinless. He made us an unbroken fellowship with him. And what did we do? Sin. We broke it. Why are we imperfect? Because Adam sinned. But God made Adam in perfect moral holiness. 
and Adam chose disobedience on all of our behalves. Well, I don't like this system because I wouldn't have chosen it. I would have chosen to obey. No, you wouldn't have. No, you wouldn't have. Refer to October 15th. What did I say? 2016? Right? You all know what I mean. That day you can look back at in your life. You're like, whoa. That day. That was not a Christian day. Right? There is no injustice when God requires us to live up to the potential with which we were created. The trouble is that we no longer have the original potential. We lost it forever when we all sinned in Adam. So we cannot bring Jesus' righteousness plus anything of our own. When I was in uh, uh, organic chemistry in college, and we had to go to lab a couple times a week, and there's... I had the forceps. I don't know what happened. I had the forceps. I had the, we were doing a, a couple of experiments, dropping things in acid. And, and I had the jar of really, really expensive, I forget which acid it was. doesn't matter because the point of this story is I dropped the tongs into the really expensive jar of acid. Yeah, yeah. So then I ended up in the professor's office uh, being asked questions about if I knew the value of the acid and why I was in a science class in the first place. And, and I said, I mean, there's got to be something you can do to clean it up, right? And she said, no, pure is pure, and impure is impure. And there's no going back. Oh, one day that'll be a sermon illustration. Uh, no. um, we cannot make our works righteous just because we have faith in Christ. His works are righteous. Ours are tainted. Think about the best thing you've ever done. The best thing you've ever done. 100% for the right reasons. 100% with pure motives. 100% you did. Like it just doesn't exist. You can always find some tinge of self in there and the self is what ruins it. And so we could never bring that alongside the righteousness of Christ and say, hey, look, Jesus, I brought you this record of perfect works at the judgment, and I brought you this other great stuff that I did to go along with it. What's the other great stuff going to do? It's the forceps and the acid. It's going to poison the whole thing. You have to just bring Jesus perfect righteousness, not anything less than that. Okay, so then it doesn't matter what we do. Nope. Actually, it does. (laughs) How do we know? This is the easiest answer ever. It's the same answer every single time I ask. How do we know anything? The Bible tells me so. We know because scripture tells me so. Scripture tells us that God will reward the good works of his people. So why? Why does God reward the good works of his people if everything I just said is that even our good works aren't totally good? Why? Does God reward our good works? Grace. Circle gets the square. Because it pleases him to do so. Because God delights in showing grace and favor to his people. The book has a good analogy here. A human father will sometimes reward his son for something he's done, even though the work he did is substandard. (laughs) Let the reader understand. Think of a son's first attempt to make a gift for his dad of clay or wood. When the father rewards the son, what is he really rewarding? 
What he really rewards is the loving intention that he sees in his son rather than the imperfect product. The product is proof there was loving intention. Uh, child decides that they're going to make me a, uh, a necktie for Father's Day. Please don't make me a necktie for Father's Day. Why would the child do that? The child loves me and wants to give me a good gift. But the child might not be very good at crafting neckties. <laughs> so it might be a little crooked. might not be long enough to go around. My neck. Could have all sorts of problems. If I'm a good father, I'm going to affirm the goodness of what they've done. The result was imperfect, but the loving intention is what was there. How's God going to look at your good works? Is he going to say, you made me a crooked necktie? No. By his grace, he's going to reward the loving intention that was behind them. And that loving intention cannot be there apart from faith, which cannot be there without the imputation of the righteousness of his son. And that's why we go back to the analogy of the eye. It's a body. The whole thing comes together. You get the whole thing with it. And so even these works that we do that are not perfect, but the loving intention is that we're doing them in obedience to God. We're doing them out of joyful obedience. We're doing them out of love for God's goodness to us. And he will reward the faith that motivated them, even if the result is substandard. Even the loving intention is not perfect, though, as well, right? I know what you mean. I know what you're getting at. Um. We do not always want to please God, and we do not always want to do what is best for us in obedience to God. So in that sense, the loving intention is not perfect. It's at war with the old man, with the flesh. The power of the loving intention can only come from faith in Christ, which is itself perfect. This is my little bit of struggle with, you just need to have more faith. And... Uh, those of you who don't know me well, I, I, I don't nitpick on words. So when people say, I, I want to know what you mean by that, because you could mean something that I disagree with, but you might just mean, you know, hey, you need to reorient yourself in the faith that you already have. You say you have faith, but you're not, you're not trusting God in this situation. And the way they chose to say that is you need to have more faith. I'm not going to argue with people over that. But uh, if we're going to nitpick for a minute, I will nitpick very much with that phrase. Faith is, is a binary. It's an objective reality from God. He's either given faith or he's not given faith. And if you have true faith, you have it because God gave it. And God does not give imperfect, inadequate, or insufficient faith. You have all the faith that you need within you to walk in righteousness with Christ. How do I know? Because God gave it to you. See why I would nitpick on that? Most of the time when people say you need more faith, they mean the first thing. So please don't yell at them. And please don't tell them you're yelling at them on behalf of me. Stephen. We live in an age where American Christianity does or claims to do everything through loving 
everything we do is mm. loving and thinking of our neighbor or loving and thinking of. So there's got to be a difference between, I guess, what is the distinction between where you draw those lines? Where you can say something is imperfect, but you did it with loving intention, you're going to be rewarded. And you did it with loving intention, and it was the right, like, and you're going to be rewarded. The loving intention should be for God first. So the idea that we are, would be willing to set God aside so that we could demonstrate what we th- want to believe is loving intention to our neighbor is the first category error. Uh, and then the second would be there's an expectation in the Christian life that you learn and that you grow. And so there are things, uh, and we, hate, we want everything to be so black and white. We want, we want the rule book. We want the checklist. We, we hate the concept of wisdom and judgment because, woof, that requires some discernment. And so I just, tell me what the rule is. But do you know that there are some things you could do for God in loving intention that at one point in your life would not be sinful and later would? He would not receive the same positive feedback from me as he did when he was six. It's a great analogy, right? There's an expectation of growth, of growth and maturity and grace over the course of a life. there's There's a time that something may not be sinful and a time where the exact same behavior would be. How do I know? Meat sacrifice to idols. I got this whole case in the New Testament that says it sort of depends on where you are in your thinking. All the weaker brother issues are about that. Where are you in your growth in wisdom and grace? If you're at this place in your growth in wisdom and grace, you shouldn't eat those things. You shouldn't drink those things. People should lay down their rights for your sake because you're here. But that's why it's called the weaker brother, not the smarter brother, not the weaker brother. You need to grow in strength. You've been having milk. Now you need to have solid food. And so it is absolutely the case that somebody could do something in loving intention for God and neighbor at some point, and they need to be taught from the scriptures. And if they reject the teaching from the scriptures and continue to say that it's me and not God who gets to define what love looks like, then it becomes sin. Kathy? Yes, and it's very hard to imagine someone going through any length of Christian life whatsoever not availing themselves of those things because the Spirit works. Like this, the Spirit is not indifferent to our growth, and so we would have to be actively resisting the Spirit at that part. But absolutely, God's desire is to make us better lovers of God and better lovers of neighbor. That's what God's doing. Sanctification is a big fancy word. Make us more like Christ. Make us more obedient. All those are good terms we need to think about. But what is God really trying to do when we say he's trying to make us more like Christ? He's trying to make us a better lover of God. How good is Jesus at loving God? The best. And the Spirit is trying to make us a better lover of God. And how good is Jesus at loving neighbor? The best. Even when Jesus did things that were mean, he was loving his neighbor. Scandalous. 
scandalous. We need to get better at loving our neighbors. And that's what sanctification and Christ-likeness and all that is. Uh, I'm a minute over, but let me read this last part and then we'll be done. I'm sorry if I gave you a Bible verse and we didn't use it. I have to skip it now. There is no such thing as union with Christ that does not produce good fruit. Even the thief who died on the cross beside Jesus began, as soon as he trusted in Christ, to bear witness to the unbeliever. You ever think about that? I hadn't. I honestly hadn't until this. Even the thief on the cross who were like, oh, that guy didn't have any time to demonstrate following Jesus. Yeah, he did. (laughs) He used it well. (laughs) Percentage-wise, he used more of his Christian life walking actively with Christ than I have. (laughs) The fruit was there as soon as he had living union with Jesus. So it is with all who are brought into Christ as as real believers. Here's a way to test our understanding. Notice two interesting things our Lord Jesus says about the day of judgment. On the one hand, he says that when he begins to praise the saved... For the good works they did, what's their response? They're amazed. They ask, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? The amazed are stunned when Jesus says, well done. You have followed my will. And they're like, what? We followed your will. When we do that, right? How does it go in the other direction? But when he deals with the lost, they will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? They will have a list of the good works they did. But it is to them that Jesus solemnly says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Precisely what is the difference? It's that the ungodly look upon their best works as having merit. And for this reason, they are perfectly obnoxious to the Lord Jesus. The godly, on the other hand, see nothing meritorious in their own works. On the contrary, their hope is built on the righteousness and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus alone. And for this very reason, the good works they have done are pleasing to God. And Jesus is pleased to keep the record and reward them on the day of judgment. The only good works that can ever please God are the ones we do with no thought of whatever merit. Isn't that great? 